This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. The big question about Trump is like, uh, which agenda takes priority? That doesn't even seem like the big question about Trump to me. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by my colleagues uh, Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. We got a, a thrilling, thrilling episode post-election, back to traditional Weeds format better for you today. Better slept this time. Um, better rested, um, been eating right for, I wouldn't say a full week, but at least several days of the week. Um, and we're going to also try to keep the episode to a, a contained time period because there's some uh, important uh, reporting journalism that has to happen after. Reporting journalism. journo porting. Um, Love the journo porting. Yeah. Um, so I think we were, we're going to kick things off uh, by talking about about what seem to be the top policymaking priorities of the uh, new era in Washington. Uh, one is uh, doing something on, on immigration enforcement, um, and, and the other is doing something on repealing and possibly replacing Obamacare. And something I think is interesting here is that, and, and this is speaking to a dynamic that is going to be important throughout the Trump presidency, one of these priorities is clearly Donald Trump's top priority. And the other of these priorities is congressional Republicans' top priority. And both these things can happen simultaneously because they use different avenues and and mechanisms of power. But I I do think something that will be fascinating here is the way in which these things play out differently. I think that Trump is much more committed to things like deportation than Paul Ryan is, Paul Ryan, who wanted a comprehensive immigration reform bill. Wait, when did Paul Ryan want a comprehensive? Hasn't he said that a bunch? He's been a pretty, he's been a pretty long time advocate of that. Vote for one or co-sponsor one or bring one to the floor of the house. My under- I could be wrong. My understanding is that he has been pretty steadfastly said that we should do that. Okay. We can, check. Continue. we can check. I will, I will, I will look it up on continuing phone. series of Matt thinks Ezra is too credulous about Paul Ryan. <laughs> fair and, enough. Uh, but the point, either way, I think it is fair to say Paul Ryan, his, he has also not been proposing large deportation projects. Sure. I mean, what Paul, Paul Ryan wants has been to proposing do is take is medicine Obama. from poor people. Yeah, right? and he like, has been proposing He thinks, I mean, in a difference, right, is like, Paul Ryan thinks that like white poor people, black poor people, Hispanic poor people, poor people of all kinds need to be just drastically lowered their standard of living, right? Like that's his top priority. Certainly the social services they get. He wants to cut those. Right. So that their standard of living is low. I think he would. I'm, I, in a continuing series, Ezra is going to be more generous to people's <laughs> motives than Matt. I think Paul Ryan has a flawed but nevertheless a view about how to create human uplift. All right. Should we talk about it? Let's should talk, we talk about, about the health care yes. review. So Let's start with the health I have been doing a lot of reading of Republican repeal plans. And I think one thing I've been thinking through reading this is for the past few years, I think we have said a little too glibly that, oh, Republicans don't have a replacement plan. And I've been convinced as I've spent hours reading them. There are a lot of replacement plans. They haven't coalesced around right. one replacement plan. Right. They plan. don't have a singular replacement plan. They don't have a plan. singular replacement plan. But I, I do feel like, you know, as of now, I've spent a lot of time reading these. I would like to apologize if I've ever chided Republicans for not taking this seriously. There has been a lot of thinking about what they would do instead. And, and the upshot is this. The Republican view of what replace would look like, and we can talk about whether we even get to replace at any point um, later, but what replace would look like is a world where – more people have insurance than pre-Obamacare, but it's definitely fewer people than the current situation. 
So you end up, and I think liberal economists and conservative economists generally agree on this, that there'll be a decline from Obamacare levels, but it probably won't be to the level pre-ACA. One thing that surprised me reading all these plans is a lot of the structures of the ACA stay in place. Um, The idea of giving people tax credits for health insurance sticks around. Um, There's some motions towards making it easier for people to get coverage, even if they have pre-existing conditions. There are some ways that the ACA is really influencing what the marketplace looks like in these Republican plans. That being said, there is a different vision, the vision that Matt talks about, where this is a health insurance market, the one that comes up in most Republican replacement plans, that advantages healthy young people and disadvantages older, sicker people. And this is something I think the conservative economists I've been talking to are quite upfront about, that they think this is a market that'll get a healthier mix of people and that'll lower premiums. And I think they're right. I think this is a market where if you are a 25-year-old, you will probably find cheaper premiums. But if you are a 60-year-old, you might struggle to find affordable health insurance. And so it's a different vision of who who has helped. I would say there are people being helped in a way that they weren't before Obamacare. But it'll be it'll be a shift in which people have. But also the the total amount of federal spending would be would it be higher or would it be lower? (sighs) That's a great question. I mean, that goes outside of like what Republicans decide to do on all these taxes. And are you saying just on the subsidies or like the entire package? Well, I mean, I think I think it's important to understand what is the overall structural goal here. Right. And as I understand it, the plans do not say let's keep the total federal spending commitment constant, let's keep federal taxes constant, but let's rejigger who the beneficiaries are. The goal is to reduce the amount of money that is spent on subsidizing people's health insurance so that you can scale back the amount of taxes that pay to finance the system. Yeah, so I think that's part of the goal is getting rid of a lot of these taxes and Obamacare. But you don't see like a complete – there are different ways they want to finance it. Right. There is – and this is actually an interesting question I was talking to. I just think it's important to count like as a winner in this, right? Like say you are a multi-billionaire real estate investor. Right. And the Medicare or even just a multi hundred millionaire right, real estate right. investor who won't let anybody see your taxes. Right. But like if you <laughs> say, hypothetically speaking, no, or say you're 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 uh, David Koch. Sure. Right. Yes. This, this you're going to be a you. big winner, like personally, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, like much more so than a typical young and healthy person looking to buy insurance. The, the financial gains to David Koch will be astronomical if the Medicare taxation of, of capital gains is repealed. Right. So there's a specific tax in Obamacare that is is quite punitive on the very, very rich, um, as Matt says, the, the Medicare cap gains tax. And that, I think, in all of these plans disappears. But yes. I, have a, I have a different question for you, Sarah. Taking as a premise that all these plans cut total federal spending on subsidies and, and just in general create a much less generous health insurance system. And they do that by... In many cases, they're much more focused on catastrophic uh, and high deductible plans than than Obamacare, which already has fairly high deductibles that Republicans complain about. And they do it, uh, as you say, by by changing the locus of the system. I do think it's interesting that Democrats who have a coalition that focuses on young people created a health care plan that is particularly generous to old people and Republicans who have a coalition that focuses on old people keep criticizing it and want to change it to be much more um, focused on on young people, much more advantageous for young people. And again, I think Democrats created something that is oriented towards the sick 
and Republicans, I think, are creating something that is more oriented towards getting people who are not yet sick, catastrophic um, in, in insurance. But you keep talking about the plans. And uh, I would like to get a little bit of a sense of the range. What is the plan that is taken seriously by Republicans that is maybe on the more generous end of the spectrum? And what is the plan taken seriously by Republicans that is on the less generous end on this, of the spectrum? Like what, what are we looking at as polls in this debate? Because I don't yeah. think – I think we're slightly overstating the amount of agreement here. Sure. Um, so uh, taken seriously is a hard thing to sort out right now. Yes. We're a week <laughs> after, after the election. I think Republicans are figuring out which plans they take seriously. So you range from straight up repeal. So this is the bill that was passed in 2015, which has, I guess, is arguably the least generous plan. It does nothing to help people who lose coverage through and Medicaid. So how, how many of the incumbent Republican senators voted for that plan? That's a, I, I assume all of them. Okay. I mean, yes, like every like there was. So, th- this, so it seems like yes. there kind of is consensus. No, just no. on that's the repeal plan. This is the repeal plan, not the replace plan. Right. So yes. all of them yes, they were all willing to yeah, enact yeah, yes. legislation that would take all the health insurance yes. away from everyone two, yes. with no guarantee that there's a replacement. So it has this two-year transition period. The idea being, the idea they passed it with is in these two years, we'll coalesce around a plan. You're totally right. It does not have the replacement part in it. And there's no guarantee that there ever would be. Sure. But I think there is a lot of political force, too. To pass this. And we'll see. This is something we talked about on the weeds last week. Like, could you kick 20 million people off their insurance? Would you end up with these, like, delays if they don't get it done in two years? But I'd say so that's, that's on one end. It's just, like, straight up replace, do nothing. Um, I, I think – and this is a debate within the Republican Party right now. Like, do they do replace and repeal at the same time? Do they split them up? It, the replace and delay is a new term that's, like, coming up. So that, anyway, so this is one end. Replace like, and delay. Repeal yeah. and delay. Sorry, replace <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> OK, so one, so one of them is repeal and delay. So that's like kind of the extreme end. Also on the extreme end is I would say Donald Trump and um, this plan from Senator Senator Ted Cruz, this idea where you just get rid of Obamacare. And, and the one reform you introduce is um, letting insurers sell across state lines, which is like not really going to do much for people. Let, let's say clearly that is not a replace plan. Yeah, that doesn't replace Obamacare is, with anything that accomplishes well, so you would Obamacare repeal sense. all of Obamacare, and then in effect, you would repeal Most all insurance state health insurance. Yes. Yes. Right. So, so there, but this is something like that is being framed as repeal and replace by like. Right. Let's but be. Like, I am not willing on okay. the weeds to frame it that way. No, but I, I just want to be clear. <laughs> yes, like, this totally, is when totally. Republicans think about the spectrum. Like this is on the spectrum, and it's not just it's not just um, Donald Trump who's talking about it. Senator Ted Cruz, with a group of Republican senators, he introduced a bill that like seems to be the basis for for Donald Trump's um, view on Obamacare that basically repeals the law. And the one thing it does is um, adds in insurance across state lines. That's the one one reform it offers. Okay, Um, so that's one. So this is like one spectrum is repeal, repeal (sighs) with like very tiny, (laughs) tiny changes. And it exists in legislation and it's co-sponsored by Republicans. Um, I'd say on the other and then in the middle are preserve some parts of Obamacare, but do it in a way that really advantages healthy people. So I'd put Paul Ryan's better way in this category where you have some of the structures of Obamacare, but they look quite different. Um, For example, you have tax credits to help people buy insurance, but instead of structuring them around income, you structure them around age. So it's a more regressive way to structure your tax credits. Um, You have- What do the tax credits, you you may not know this offhand, do you know what the tax credits cover? What do you mean by that? So right now, like if you make, you know, whatever, 150 yeah. percent of the poverty line, the tax credits cover X percentage. Oh, of the yeah. yeah. Plan. So they're flat dollar. 
So this is another way that they, so they, they, one of the arguments um, Ryan makes in better way is that by tethering the credits to the size of the subsidy, it just encourages subsidies to go up. So we're just going to cap them a specific amount. Hold on one sec. Would his credit actually cover a health insurance plan of any kind? Like if you were poor and you didn't have a spare dollar, so he has not named the size of his credit. Oh, really? So that ah, so uh, so <laughs> so the Patient Care Act, which is the leading um, the leading option on the Senate side, has gosh, it has um, what was it? It's one hundred and sixty four dollars a month for a young person, eighteen to thirty four. Which seems like it might cover like a catastrophic. Yeah, you could get a catastrophic plan in a lot of places. So so. So it might, and it has a really interesting idea of defaulting. Is the tax people. credit refundable? Yes. So that's like a weird, a kind of interesting way Obamacare sticks around in these plans, where it's advanceable, refundable tax credit. Real quick, because this is not terminology everybody knows. <laughs> refundable means that you get the tax credit even if you don't have a tax yes. liability. A lot of folks of lower incomes don't pay income taxes. When you have non-refundable credits, which Donald Trump's plan, as I remember, is non-refundable, so yes. it basically does nothing for you if you're poorer. Even if you pay nothing, you get a check from the government. That, yeah. That's what a refundable credit is. Yeah. So anyway, so you have this, I, I kind of see better way, patient care, which is the leading one on the Senate side, as the middle ground right now. And then closest to Obamacare, I'd probably put um, Ovik Roy's plan, where he he does really tether the subsidies to income. That's a big difference of his plan from other Republican proposals. And um, there's a few plans, um, the American... Enterprise Institute that would keep the marketplaces around that says these things should still stick around. Huh. They're a good place for people to shop for insurance. So that's another plan I'd kind of group in the like closer to Obamacare. Yeah, I think that's kind of my. So I think the ones that are closer to Obamacare right now that we're seeing are actually coming out of conservative think tanks. I haven't seen them get a sponsor on the Hill at this point. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. I remain very skeptical about what's going to happen here. And one reason I'm skeptical, and and I think skeptical in what way? What do you skeptical mean? that there will be replace? Okay, and to some degree that there will be repeal. But I I do think there will be repeal. But I I kind of think we're going to get into sort of like a Medicare doc fix, like just kicking the can down the road endlessly situation. And, and here's why. So if you want to read about Republican health care plans, in addition to, to Sarah's awesome article on this, which you should check out on Vox.com, Wait, Phil I Klein. I don't know if it'll be up by the time this episode comes out. You should keep refreshing Vox.com 
uh, on just on click Sarah's around and if you page. see anything else there, just share it. Yeah, yeah, and click on some ads. Oh, um, yeah, by Thursday. <laughs> by Thursday. I'm, well, I have to go to HHS after this. Fair Anyways. enough. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so Phil Klein also he wrote a good. He's a conservative writer at the Washington Examiner. He wrote a book, an ebook, I think, about Republican health care plans. It was about a year ago. The real lesson I took away from that book, which is sort of a survey of all the Republican health care plans, was that the difference between Democrats and Republicans on this issue more than anything else is that your ordinary Democratic member of Congress, part of the reason they are in politics is as a moral commitment. They think people should have health insurance. And so they're, they're willing to pay, as they did during Obamacare, a fair cost to do health care, right? They're willing to do things that are unpopular, that are difficult, that might lose them their seat because they think it would be a historic accomplishment to do this. Republicans have a tremendous amount of anti-Obamacare fervor. They are truly morally committed to repealing Obamacare. What they are not actually that committed to, like your average Republican is not in Congress because he wants to or she wants to remake health insurance markets or because they believe that everybody should be able to afford health insurance, even that some people more so than than could pre-Obamacare should afford it. And as you get into this stuff and as all of these plans, which are really sketched out right now, I mean, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, the, the better way doesn't even have money attached to it. As you get into how they're financed, as you get into precisely how they're regulated, as you get into really who wins and who loses, and you stop just being able to kind of pretend as as all Republicans have, that there is some kind of costless trade-off you can make. As you go out as a Republican and say, the thing we are going to do is we're going to make health insurance much more expensive for older people, and you face that backlash in your districts, I am very skeptical that Republicans are willing to pay that cost. And so... In terms of what it would take to actually create and coalesce around one of these plans, as you say, I think it is telling that the more serious plans here are coming out of the think tank world. Ovik isn't even a Republican anymore. He left the party during this um, campaign. And so I, I think that there's an interesting question, which we argued out a little bit last week, of whether you believe they're going to be willing to pay the price of repeal without replace, right? Whether before or in any case ever. They're going to just take health care insurance away from 22 million people and absorb the political pain of that. But if you don't believe that, and, and the Republicans I've been talking to at least say they don't believe that, the place where I just kind of get off the train is I'm very skeptical that when it comes down to like the price you have to pay to make these trade-offs and you know like have losers in your plan, I am not sure Republicans want to really do this, which is why they haven't. I so, mean, they've come up with individual plans, but that's why they haven't done the work to actually come up with one. Back in the one. fall of 2015, right, there was a—I think it was fall or 2013. I, I forget when it was. But there was a mania launched by Ted Cruz around the idea that Republicans should launch a shutdown of the federal government. 2013. 2013, unless, unless it repealed Obamacare. Um, Republican members of Congress looked at this proposal, as I understand it, and they thought that this was insane, right? <laughs> I mean, they thought that it wasn't— that it was on the one hand, it was going to be extremely politically costly, that it would be very, very unpopular for them, and also that there was no chance that it would work. So that the question of like the trade-off between are we so committed to this mm -hmm. that we're willing to pay the price or not, it didn't even arise. It was like, are we going to pay a steep political price for no reason? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to just avoid the political price? And they they were really like not happy about the situation that developed because it's it's really dumb to do something grossly unpopular that also has no chance of success. 
But ultimately, they did it because, you know, talk radio and Ted Cruz and uh, who knows what were, were up in arms. And it worked out exactly as poorly as Republicans on Capitol Hill thought it would work out. Like their poll numbers tanked. There was like suddenly like D plus 14 in the generic ballot. Like, like it, it was crazy talk. Um so they caved after it was like a week. I mean, they caved really fast because it was, it was really dumb. Um, and it turned out that political memories, you know, are short. And this didn't hurt them at all in, in the 2014 midterms, just as like it really hurt Donald Trump's poll numbers when he was like heard on videotape talking about how he likes to sexually assault women. Um, but after a couple weeks, his numbers bounce back. So I just don't see why they can't do a repeal that will kick people off their insurance, that will tank poll numbers for some members, but just don't have it happen in September or October of an election year, and then, like, walk away from it. I mean, they've been willing to tank their numbers over Obamacare repeal outside of an election season in, like, much pettier kinds of ways to, like, actually get something done. Like, why not? Yeah. So one theory in terms of timeline on that that I hear floating around a lot is that you could see like repeal pass really quickly, like, you know, in January, but the implementation date would be January 2019. So basically you set it for right after the midterms, you kind of put off any of the political pain of it. Um, and, you know, and would you say when when you yeah. hear people talk about this and the potential risk of people losing their insurance, are they concerned about political blowback or are they concerned like morally speaking that people may be sick i have heard most concern about political blowback but i don't want to like use that to characterize the I, entire I, I understand but i'm, I'm just party. saying like no, what, I, what, I what does the report i think there is a very arid discussion yeah. of this i think they didn't a lot of republicans heart of hearts they would just like to get rid of this and, you know, I think that there is an argument among Republicans. It has become popular. The health insurance doesn't really make you healthier, even though they all have it. We all have it. So I think there's a lot that is morally uh, appalling in this conversation. Uh, and, and I want to I want to actually, like, put that there. That said, I think that politicians remain relatively risk averse uh, and even Republicans. Right. I, I, I think the point you make here is a really good one. And I think that it should lower anybody's confidence that there's just not going to be straight repeal. But that said, as you say, they did cave pretty quickly on that. And the cost of that, right, the cost of a government shutdown is just way less than the kinds of stories you tell after this woman in this guy's district with her child who has cystic fibrosis now can't have health insurance, right? That is mm -hmm. that is a very different kind of story to tell than it's hard to get into a national park mm -hmm. now. So and that that's ongoing. And number two, I think that there were a lot of cliffs in the Obama years that Republicans, yeah, they really did come near doing. They almost created a debt ceiling um, crisis, right? They did create a crisis. They, they almost created a breach. You had things around sequestration, um, uh, which was allowed to go on for a while. You had some different kinds of tax cliffs like the Bush tax cuts. Mm -hmm. There really is a willingness to, to play chicken with this, particularly when Obama was in office and they figured the, the, the majority party would get at least part of the blame for the country going off the rails. Donald Trump is a guy, I think, who enjoys having high poll numbers and wants to be reelected and wants to be popular. And I think that Mitch McConnell is somebody who wants to keep his Senate majority and Paul Ryan is somebody who wants to keep the speakership. I could very much be wrong about how they end up handicapping this. I'm taking them a little bit at their word that 
you know, th- they think what they're saying is true, that it would be bad to do this. But, you know, this may be like I do think that if repeal without replace happens, it will be very much the dynamic you put out that what Republicans will have done is a two clever by half system where they did repeal on a two-year time fuse or a three-year time fuse or whatever it is. They get there. They have not been able to do replace for some of the reasons that I've articulated. And then talk radio and conservative activist groups will mobilize and create a situation where even as everybody thinks it is a disaster, it is not possible for Republicans to vote to delay even if they don't have replace. And that you will get into a kind of full repeal that Republicans are terrified of, but happens anyway. I think that's a totally plausible outcome. Well, I want to go back to one thing you said. So one reason I have in reporting like on all these replacement plans, my prediction of replace happening has gone up reporting these. And I think, you know, I kind of one helpful analogy, um, one of the former Senate aides I was talking to made for me was like, think back to like 2009 when Democrats are just getting started on health care. And there's a lot of different proposals flying around. There's a lot of white papers and there's a lot of stuff that like hasn't been figured out yet. But there's a lot of energy going into figuring it out. So I don't necessarily take the fact that Republicans aren't coalesced at a at a specific policy position right now as a sign that they're not serious about um, replace that they won't be able to coalesce. I think, you know, uh, I was talking to Doug Holtz Aiken, the former CBO director, recently, who was saying, you know, they'll coalesce when they have to. And one thing that might actually play in Republicans' um, favor here is if you have people who have less strong feelings about, like, what coverage should look like, it might actually make it a little bit easier to get people on board with the same thing. So I don't take the fact that Republicans, that there is definitely, like I said, like an array of plans. There's a lot of variation. I feel like it's a bit of an overreach to say, well, they're just a disarray and they don't know what to do at this point. I think they have very suddenly been put into a place of power where they can actually use these plans and turn them into law. So I would not be shocked if you see like a coalescing. I mean, I could see it going either way. Either like you end up with these like fights over what to what this looks like. But I don't think it's unrealistic to say, like, look, they have a lot of ideas floating around now. They've just been put in a position of power to turn those ideas into law. And like come January, February, we might see some like version of this in legislation and like a hammering out of like what the details of that look like. I think this might be a good point to pivot to deportation. Yeah. So Donald Trump came out and he gave his first big interview to 60 Minutes. And he was asked about his immigration plans. And and I think something that some liberals were holding out hope for was that Trump, after getting elected, uh, would say, oh, <laughs> I didn't want you to take me literally. I just wanted you to take me seriously. And I'm not going to do any of that. But in fact, he came out and he said, absolutely, we're going to do a wall. And he talks about the wall with real passion because he talks about it like a construction project. He gets really upset uh, when people say you can't do it because he's like, no, I'm a builder. We're going to do a fence here and we're going to get materials. So he wants to do the wall. And and secondarily, he said, we are going to do massive deportations. And he said that we are going to deport uh, two to three million unauthorized immigrants with criminal records. Now, a funny thing about this, to the best of our knowledge, there are not two to three million unauthorized immigrants with criminal records. And so we are left with, well, one, um, Donald Trump's primary promise is based on a bogus statistic. But two, we don't know if that means that he's still going to just deport two to three million immigrants, but they're just not going to be folks with criminal records. We don't know if he is just not going to 
deport two to three million folks. But what is worth saying is that unlike the Obamacare example, where Trump will need to be negotiating with Republicans in Congress and depending uh, on whether or not they use reconciliation, potentially even Democrats in the Senate, here he has a tremendous amount of power just through the executive branch. He doesn't really need anybody's sign off to orient the uh, artillery of the federal of the executive sort of immigration services towards deporting people, towards hassling people, towards making uh, the lives of of immigrants and unauthorized and for that matter, legal, uh, so miserable that many of them just leave because they feel so unwelcome. And we we really don't know what he will do here exactly, but he is certainly signaling that he is planning to continue and and make good on his promises here. The current uh, lead candidate for attorney general is Chris Kobach, who is uh, the Kansas Attorney General, and is extremely, extremely anti-immigrant. Like he is really uh, the the sort of leader of that legal movement. He would have a lot of power over this, and you know, all signs are that Trump is going to use the power of the federal government to make good on his promise to make the lives of a lot of unauthorized and again potentially, depending on how this plays out, authorized immigrants completely miserable. And I would also add that I think this is potentially an area in which Donald Trump does not know as much about Donald Trump's own plan as it's possible to know that um, he did not have a lot of institutional supporters during the campaign, uh, but he was very heavily supported by the labor unions that represent the workforces of the immigration enforcement agency is. And he was always supported uh, by by Senator Jeff Sessions of of Alabama, who's been a a long time. He's not quite like the party establishment, quote unquote, but he's a real United States senator and a a veteran legislator who has uh, quite a lot of thoughts on on immigration policy. He was the leader of the Republicans who killed George W. Bush's 05 immigration. Yeah. And also just he's been working on this for for a long time and he's been working with those unions and all signs are that the unlike in some other areas of policy there is a group of individuals who are deeply versed in immigration policy who do appear to have the confidence of Donald Trump and who he regards as as loyal to him rather than as just like party people or or ideologues so i think they are going to move forward with what they want to do yeah. which it, it, i i want to try to characterize this fairly but There was a lot of tension between Obama and the immigration enforcement agencies throughout his eight years in office where basically what Obama wanted to say was that because Obama's view was that the bulk of the unauthorized population ultimately should be given legal status to stay in the United States, that the goal of the immigration enforcement agencies should be to not hassle those people, that they should focus on preventing new border crossings in order to deter future border crossings and also on deporting people who um, were dangerous to, to the country. And the immigration enforcement agents simply do not agree with that vision. They feel that what they ought to be doing is sort of finding the unauthorized wherever they may be, creating a – they know that just logistically speaking, you cannot round up and deport 11 million people. But what you can do is create a situation in which any given unauthorized person thinks to themselves, oh, I have a 1 in 20 chance of being deported this month. Um, So what I'm going to try to do is like – 
pack up my life in an organized way and go back to where I came from and, and resettle. And also an atmosphere in which employers are very concerned about getting caught hiring undocumented people. Uh, this is what, what Mitt Romney in a, in a much less feral manner referred to as self-deportation, right? That you don't – and that's the vision of the Immigration Enforcement Agency is it's what what Romney explained in like a calm way. Trump talks about it in like an unhinged sounding way. Uh, but, I, but I think it all amounts to roughly the same thing. But the, the tricky part I think is going to be – where it's going to conflict with other uh, priorities and which has always been a problem for Republican administrations um, – when they want to crack down on, on immigration, is sanctioning employers, right? So Jeff Sessions and the Immigration Enforcement Agencies are both very jazzed up about the idea of, of workplace raids where, you know, you come in, you check everybody's ideas, you, you check to see if the employers were following the right procedures. If you find one undocumented guy who's like slipped into your workforce at 50, you're hit with huge fines. Um, business groups don't like that idea. Uh, Latino legal residents. All this red tape slowing down hiring. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This was a big sticking point for Ronald Reagan's administration. It was a big sticking point when Bill Clinton was much more of an immigration hawk than I think uh, mainstream Democrats remember, uh, but wound up getting pushback from Republicans for doing doing too much of of this kind of thing. Yeah, I just it's worth noting there is a longtime fight on immigration. Back when the Democratic Party was less committed to a path to legalization, where the fight, which was around um, enforcement, was that Republicans wanted to enforce on the immigrants and Democrats wanted to enforce on employers. And like that was the traditional sort of like labor versus capital, um, you know, cut of this debate. Exactly. And and Obama – did a, you know, it's a version of it, right? So like what Obama was trying to do was enforce the law against border crossers, but against like neither long settled immigrants nor employers, right? That was the like Obama synthesis of this. Trump at least nominally wants to reverse both aspects of that. Um, One side of it I think should be relatively easy for him to do because it doesn't, it's not just that he has it in his power to do it, but he doesn't really have to do anything. Right. He just has to say to the mid-ranking officials in those agencies, like, yeah, go do what you want. Right. Obama spent eight years hectoring them. I want to talk a little bit about both human consequences and political consequences here. Human consequences here are, are genuinely disastrous or disastrous for children whose parents are, are unauthorized, but the children were born here and, you know, they have lives here or they've lived here for seven years and they go to school here. I mean, uh, there's going to be a lot of just human suffering of people who what they did was they came here to have a better life. Um, I grew up in Southern California. There were uh, a lot of unauthorized immigrants where I, I grew up. Um, our culture was fine. Our community was great. They are wonderful people. And and I just – I find the dehumanization of these people is one of the things in politics that, that genuinely makes me sick. Uh, but the other thing I want to note is I did an interview for – the interview podcast I do with Ron Brownstein this week. And something we were talking about there was Prop 187 in California. And Prop 187 was a very draconian uh, ballot initiative that basically took all social services away from um, unauthorized immigrants. And it was supported by Pete Wilson, who was the Republican governor at the time. And it's considered to have destroyed the Republican Party in California. Like there basically is no Republican Party in California now. And one thing that I think people forget about this is that Prop 187 passed. 
it didn't destroy Republicans because they proposed it. It destroyed them because they did it. And it's very hard to say from exit polls how Hispanics voted in this election because exit polls are just very, very bad at accurately recording Hispanic turnout. I don't 100 percent understand the technical arguments as to why, but this comes up in every election. But the strategy that is being thought through here, which is a strategy of basically – it's almost like a campaign of harassment and, and borderline terrorization – is the strategy that you would pick to anger the Hispanic community the most, to take people who you know maybe thought this wouldn't be that bad and say, nope, it's, it's going to be worse than you possibly thought. Romney just talking about self-deportation in 2012 was considered, including by Donald Trump, to be yes. like a terrible political move. And now the party is going to go much further. And again, I think Donald Trump is going to try to do some stuff in Congress and find it's harder and more annoying than he thought. It requires a lot of negotiation, but he can do this. And as Matt says, he is surrounding himself with people who will do this. And this is a different kind of backlash. Um, I don't think it's a backlash that happens primarily in Republican districts. And so I think Republicans will feel inured to it for a while. But it is going to be if they do what they are saying they are going to do, there's going to be massive civil resistance. I mean, it's going to be really bad and disruptive and ugly. And I think the political consequences of it are very hard to foretell. We've not done anything like this before. It's also unclear how much of this is um, particularly like the the wall idea, which he's like said, like Donald Trump is still quite jazzed about, like how much of that actually matters to Republicans. There was a really interesting um, poll from Politico and Morning Consult where they polled a number of Republicans about what their what they felt like Donald Trump's priorities should be. Um, number one on the list was repealing Obamacare. I think like um, lowering federal spending was up there. The very bottom priority was getting the wall built. So it's kind of, I mean, like going back to what you were saying earlier, Ezra, about Donald Trump seeming to be a president who wants to be liked, who wants to get reelected, who wants to stay in office. It seems unclear to me right now, particularly, so I don't know, I've been seeing great polling about, you know, the deportation comments and um, how Republicans feel about that. But if you look at the wall, which is kind of one of the more extreme examples of Trump's immigration policy, it seems like not only would you have a backlash from a large group of voters, that it doesn't seem to be a lot of the immigration actions are some of the easiest things to do as executive branch. It's unclear if they're, they're, they are the things that matter as much to Republican voters. So that might be one kind of counterforce to this, that mm -hmm. if it's not high on voters' priorities to build a wall, that you could see kind of like a backing off of that and moving to other policies. I don't know what that will mean for some of the other deportation actions. But it seems like something that will be in the fold, at least as you know, Trump thinks about getting reelected, about being well-liked. Like, what priorities do Republican voters who would reelect me have? There's just a years-long narrative of betrayal of mm -hmm. the Republican base by leadership, specifically on immigration yeah. issues. I mean, dating back literally decades. And I think it would be I think obviously Donald Trump does not need to construct a literal 50-foot-tall concrete wall across 100 percent of the U.S.-Mexico border to say he has fulfilled his promise. I mean, I, I think some of the like don't take him seriously but not literally stuff goes too far. But like you'd have to be – have a really low opinion honestly of Trump supporters to think that like they won't accept, OK, there's a giant cliff here. We can't build a wall there. Like, that's life. But hey, you got to build something. Um, but I really do think that if 
ICE and Border Patrol agents are going off the record to talk to conservative media and being like, Trump's screwing us, man. Like, that's really bad for Trump. Like, whether or not it's like a per se a high priority for Republican voters, like, that was his whole thing, you know, was like he was going to keep faith with people who want to enforce the immigration laws. And then to Ezra's point, the question is like, what happens next, right? What happens when a Catholic church in Phoenix is sheltering undocumented immigrants and there's ICE agents at the door and there's the priest at the door and they're like, Mr. Trump, what do you do? And the Pope is on the phone Mm -hmm. and he's like, man, don't kick that door down. (laughs) And you know what I mean? Like, that's a really... This is where we get into the like realm of the unknowable, right? Yep. Where it's like, okay, do you call Steve Bannon? Anyway, it's it's we we really like we're gonna have to see what takes yeah. shape here, right? Like that is the kind of thing where a normal administration starts to back down in the face of a level of institutional resistance that they didn't quite understand, and then they try to work something out. Um, it's always possible. To, like, fight fire with fire in that kind of situation and say that, like, a cabal of Latino bishops is trying to undermine the legal structure of the United States of America. Um, I kind of don't think the Trump administration would do that, but we also don't. I totally think Steve Bannon would say he should do that, right? Uh, And Renz Priebus would say he shouldn't. And there are so far no other members of the Trump administration. So, like, we're going to have to see, like, what's what, right? But I, I think the question isn't, like, what do you do first? But it's like what ha- – yeah. for every action, there's a reaction and then we'll have to see. Uh, speaking of things that we don't know yet, uh, I think we should talk a little bit about the Democratic leadership fight. Oh, yeah. Good fact. Matt, do you want to lay the – Play the frame here? Yes, yes. Okay, so you may have seen like a weirdo story on like, you know, way below the fold of politics sites where the Democratic conference decided on Tuesday to delay the election for its House leadership team until November 30th, which who cares? Um, The reason (laughs) you care is that Nancy Pelosi was trying to keep together a unified ticket in which she, Steny Hoyer, and Joe Crowley ran for the number one, number two, number three positions and just got everybody to vote for them before there was a— And that's the current— Leadership. That's the current leadership. Yeah. No, it's it's Crowley moving up uh, because um, mm. what's-his-name is going to be a senator. Oh, uh, Van Hollen? Chris, yeah, Chris yeah. Van Hollen. Um, but so a number of younger members, led by, by Seth Moulton, Kathleen Rice, and Ruben Gallego, who are three Democrats who won in 2014 when all Democrats lost everywhere, um, they sort of spearheaded a letter saying, no, we should delay this election. The subtext being we should delay the election to find another candidate, possibly to get Hoyer to run against Pelosi or possibly something else. It seemed like this was going to fail. Pelosi took a lot of sort of retaliatory measures against them. But the Congressional Black Caucus met Monday night and decided that they favored uh, the delay, possibly because this was an all-white leadership slate they were trying to rush in, which doesn't seem like a great plan. Um, so, so, So the CBC swung and then Pelosi said, yeah, we have a consensus that we need some more time. Um, so now the question is, is, you know, will a strong challenger to Pelosi emerge, uh, which is difficult because for most of her tenure, her the bulk of the criticism of Pelosi has been from the right side of the caucus. She 
came to power as the stalwart of the left wing. Her critics have mostly been on the right, and there simply aren't very many of them. When the House Democrats held a lot of seats, a lot of them were moderates. They hold very few seats, so, so few of them are. Right. I'll, I'll just note here, I remember, I'm forgetting exactly when Pelosi was elected, but I remember that the candidate who ran against her was Harold Ford. Yes, exactly. Right, who was, you know, the, the leader of sort of like the, the new Democrat, um, right. you know, more corporatist wing of and, the party. And throughout the Pelosi-Hoyer era, which has gone on for 12 years now, Pelosi was the left and Hoyer was the right. You know, that was like the, the, the joint ticket. Um, so her critics have been on the right, but there aren't very many of them. Uh, Democrats as a whole have shifted to the left. Pelosi has to an extent... Um, fallen out of touch with like left-wing activists. She doesn't do the same progressive communications like she used to, that kind of thing. She spends a lot of time dealing with the concerns of donors and dealing with the concerns of frontline members who tend to be more vulnerable. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are on the march. So now she has these critics on the left too. Um, And she's also just associated with years of democratic And then last leadership. but by no means least, yeah. I mean, I think the main thing that these younger members feel is just that, like, nobody knows what's going to happen. But it's not rare for the incumbent president's party to face a backlash and lose a lot of seats in a midterm election. And if that happens, you kind of, like, want to come to people and be like, Here's some fresh-faced alternatives to the incumbent regime and not let your opponents be like they're bringing back Nancy Pelosi, right? Um, and I love Nancy Pelosi and, and in all honesty, have no criticisms of her leadership. Um, but I think that is a point that has a lot of force, that if you want to take back the House and you know you have to run in Republican-leaning districts, you could get someone – you could get Nancy Pelosi's clone, right? But just to be able – you don't want to say we are literally putting back the Speaker of the House who gave you Obamacare, the stimulus, whatever else yeah. she did. That's just like – that's a bad look. Like it's not fair to her. But I, I think Democrats should have learned in the presidential election that like bringing out the old warhorse is like not the best play in but life. The pro- problem here is that as of now, there is a total leadership alternative void. Yes. Right. It isn't not only do they not have the candidate, but nobody's even clear like who the three candidates they might choose between are. You can come up with some names if you really try, but there just hasn't been there isn't the person waiting in the wings. They're going to have to find their candidate pretty quickly and try to generate support for that candidate pretty quickly. Well, and, when, and it's yeah. not a complicated process because, right. as you say, like Pelosi does have a lot of loyalty from pretty important parts of the caucus. Well, and one tension I was hoping you could talk about more, you were about in your article that complicates this, is kind of where Democrats feel like they need to move. Because I think there's two versions of this. It's like, one, we need to like differentiate from the Republicans. We need to go super liberal. Like, we need to— kind of push to that side or we need to like work to win working white class Americans. And like what's curious how you since you've been covering this, like how those different priorities, like where they exist in the House right now and like how they yeah. how they likely shake out. So I just think there's like an enormous dissonance where like one viewpoint that is prominent on Capitol Hill, because they're actual elected Democrats who represent economically downscale white working class constituencies. Right. Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Donnelly, um, some dude in the House whose name I'm forgetting. Um, (laughs) But they are out there. There are white Democrats representing white low income constituents out there. And they all 
are uniformly more conservative than their colleagues from the coast, right? Than Hillary Clinton. Than Hillary Clinton, right? <laughs> they are a little bit more conservative than Hillary Clinton on bread and butter economic issues, a lot more conservative than her on environmental issues. Depending on exactly the nature of their constituencies, they're somewhere between a little and a lot more conservative than her on racial issues. But it is uniform. You will not find a single red state Democrat who has successfully won election by implementing the Bernie Sanders strategy. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, but like it's important. And, for and you'll it. note like Russ Feingold, who is like a genuine yes. Democratic populist, sure. got right. crushed. But, but I, I, I don't even want yeah. to make an argument about who's right. It's been years since I have read a political pundit like make the case for Claire McCaskill's brand of politics. Back in the day when Ezra and I were the young liberal firebrands <laughs> and dinosaurs walked the earth, there were people who were like – Evan Bayh is a model of American politics. Yes. Those people are all gone now, right? And so it's <laughs> it's easy if you are just reading takes to forget that those people continue to exist in the Congress of the United States. And they feel very strongly that the way for Democrats to win in states like Indiana and Missouri is to be more like the politicians who run and win in those states. And they would note that Evan Bayh ran way ahead of Hillary Clinton. Way ahead of Hillary Clinton, um, that Jason Kander, though he lost in Missouri, ran ahead of Hillary Clinton, that this guy Jim Justice got elected governor of of West Virginia, et cetera. So – Yeah, but that is clearly because he's got a great name. It is a good name, yes. Um, (laughs) I mean it's it's – not since Butch Otter have we had such a well-named governor. It's good. It's good. Um, But it's like – those people are marginalized in the House. Justice 2020. Okay. In, 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 in the House caucus, but they're still out there. And that is like a definite, you know, sentiment that, that, that some should do. But the idea that's gaining steam is that if you go left and populist enough on economics, you can get people over to your side even while having a relatively progressive view on other issues. Um, that is a view that a lot of members of Congress have, but it's a view that few of them have put to the test. Mm-hmm. Now, in his defense, Bernie Sanders will tell you that his constituents are very, very white and um, that the educational attainment level in Vermont is, in fact, uh, middling, uh, not not super duper high. I think any other political demographer would tell you that almost anything you say about American Uh, political demographics, you have to make a weird exception for Utah because it's full of Mormons Mm -hmm. and another weird exception for Vermont. And we don't exactly have the word for who are all those weirdo hippies who live in Vermont. The House, the the Democratic House member from Vermont, the Pat Lay. I mean, it's it doesn't look like otherwise Vermont goes for Republicans unless you get a economic populist. Vermont just appears to be a liberal state. It always votes for if they voted for Hillary Clinton, they voted for Al Gore, the most like least populist person in human history. but that's where all the energy is, right? And, and so I, I had one person posit to me. I, some people had been surprised by how quick Chuck Schumer was to embrace the idea of Keith Ellison, who's a Bernie ally, as DNC chair. Um, and, and one person from, from Bernie World uh, said to me yesterday that they thought that they had maybe gotten um, out chest by Chuck Schumer here because actually Ellison would have been the strong progressive challenger to Pelosi. That's interesting. But now he's out of the race. Right. And like actually nobody cares who the DNC chair is <laughs> and it's not important. And that and that Schumer sort of like got them all to be like, 
oh yeah, Keith Ellison, we're going to have this huge victory, but like, who cares? <laughs> Whereas if he became a uh, minority leader, that would actually be a big deal. And a guy who had the confidence of white liberals, but who was also African-American and, and would be like the candidate of color in the race, who has some level of national profile, like people who write about politics know who Keith Ellison yep. is, like they'd all be in good shape. Whereas now they're like looking around. I mean, there's a million members of the Progressive Caucus there on the backbench who in theory could run, but nobody has any idea who the fuck they are. Um, so, you know, they, they have a problem there. Yeah, yeah. That, that seems right. Continued. It's going to be fascinating. To see. I know who I, they are. I can name like four of them. I, so. I'm actually very fascinated to see how this how this race plays out. Uh, my my guess is Pelosi wins it, but mm-hmm. I think this is a pretty restive caucus at this point. And I want to note one other dynamic here, which is that, and you heard this actually going back a couple of years. There is a view held among Democratic elected officials that the party has not been doing for some time now enough to develop its bench. Mm-hmm. And they think that in comparison even to the Republican side where a lot of leadership is people like Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and before he got beat by, by, by Brad, Eric Cantor, that the Republican Party has been raising up a bench of um, younger Republican players to become national figures and that the Democratic Party – you, you're seeing the cost of not doing the same, that it, it isn't the case that the reason only five people, only two of whom were actual longtime Democrats, ran in the Democratic primaries this year. It's not, the reason that happened is not because there aren't more young Democrats as members of House leadership. But I, I think a sub theme here is that there is a real feeling uh, among Democratic elites that the party just actually really desperately needs to do more to develop its bench, that it has been crushed in governorships. There's just less happening there and that that they need to take the opportunities they have to sort of create their next generation of of key players. Well, in this dynamic, it's going to continue going forward because one of the things you saw in the the election is I think we have the most – we have a huge number of Republican governors now. I think 33 Republican governors. Um, state legislatures have basically been like very, very Republican since 2010 or so. Um, It's been – Democrats have really struggled at the state level, even when they were in majorities in in um, Congress, when they held the White House, they were still struggling on the state level to control legislatures there. And I mean, it matters for policy that's made on the state level. I think like we could see some some new policies coming out of these even more conservative legislatures. And it matters for, well, who are you going to elect to national level positions, you know, two, three, four years from now? Right. I just think when you lose... <laughs> People want to do something different, right? I mean, to to an extent, you always have, okay, are you really going to throw the existing team overboard and, like, put some unchested new people in? And at a certain point, when you've been losing for, you know, three, four, five cycles, people are like, yeah. Like we should we should try something different, right? And if you bring particularly because a new person would be more tenuous. If a new person comes in as as leader and is disastrous, you can just get rid of them too. Right. Whereas Pelosi seems entrenched. And it's like some people who've been for a while kind of thinking like, eh, maybe we could do better than this, mm-hmm. you know, are gonna want to give it a shot if they can. Speaking of trying something different, you should tell your friends to listen to the weeds. You can yeah. do that by sharing it on Facebook, on Twitter, by emailing it, by, by telling somebody in person. You can actually do that. You can walk up to somebody face-to-face, tell them That's called the Weeds dark is a good social. podcast. <laughs> can I preview? We also have a cool surprise coming on the Weeds feed. This is pretty exciting. Next week. Um, Ooh. 
Should I say more? Or? I don't I'll know. just leave it. I th- I think no, it's should. a surprise. Yeah, it's I a think, surprise. I don't want but you we to have a Thanksgiving surprise. surprise on the Weeds feed next week that I am incredibly excited about. But you so. will all be giving thanks for. Stay tuned. I give thanks for my colleagues Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff, for our producer Afim Shapiro, for Vox.com, the world's greatest website, and Panoply, its greatest podcasting network. Uh, we will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>